Welcome everybody to the Connection Podcast. This is our last in a flurry of August episodes, and I think you're really going to like it. Today we interviewed Sean Stockford of Springfield Fifth Ward. Some of you guys knew him as Bishop Stockford not too long ago, and I have to admit this is one of our funniest and also most spiritual episodes lately. I think you're going to love it. I will say a warning for parents because I know some of you listen to these episodes in the car with your kids. There is, a, I'll say, Pixar level adult humor around the hour and three minute mark that lasts for about two minutes. Just wanted to warn you guys about out. I think you'll love this episode. Take care. Welcome to the Connection Podcast. We're really excited about this episode that we have planned for you today. We have former, I wanted to call you ex-bishop, Sean Stockford. It sounded worse that way. <laughs> Welcome, Sean. Thank you. <clears throat> and we, we've we got some returning panel members as well. We have Jared Boreen. Howdy. And Casey Westover. Hello. And we were just talking, it, it seems like you were just here yesterday because you basically were. Pretty much, yeah. And I've... On the main mic here, I have Levi Keister joining me as well. Hey, all. Who has a beautiful flowing mullet. Yeah. Yep. You can't see it, but we could describe it to you if we wanted to. So, Sean, we we were talking about the podcast and the growth. It, it's gone from our Ward podcast and now it's Stake and Beyond. Um, so we we want to introduce people to those who might not know them or might not know them very well. So I want you to think about hypothetically, you know, we're not saying this is going to happen, but you move into a new ward and the bishop asks you to speak and typically you introduce yourself and your family to the ward, and go. Sean Stockford. I've uh, grown up in Oregon. I call Oregon my home since the fifth grade. I lived a short uh, period of time twice in Idaho, and I tried to block that out from my memory. <laughs> I've always enjoyed Oregon. I've lived on the east side, and I've lived on the west side. In fact, Oregon is what got me my wife of 33 years. She had seen in grade school some pictures in a picture book of Oregon and said, one day I will live there. And then when she heard in college that I was from Oregon, she saw the connection and just jumped on that opportunity. I have three kids. I have two older boys, and I have an oops child, a uh, 10-year gap there. You're welcome, my Lauren. Daughter. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, what's amazing is the uh, boys don't look like their brothers, at least in my eyes. So when we had Lauren, their, their sister, after a 10-year gap— I think we looked like a blended family everywhere we went because one of the boys definitely looked like me. One of the boys definitely looked like my wife. And then it looks like we had came together and had Kelly, or, uh, Lauren as my daughter. But it's been an amazing. And now we are getting ready to enter as uh, the next phase of our life as empty nesters as Lauren heads off to college tomorrow. Oh, wow. So where's Lauren going to college? She's going to BYU Provo. Awesome. Awesome. That's super exciting. And you know these men sitting around you. Uh, today. Tell us a little bit about you guys' relationship and, and where you've worked together. Casey Westover was my bishop when I first moved into the ward, and I had scouted the area out, knew where I was going to live, and I sent him an email simply because I came from a ward that I was very close to the bishop, and he'd shared with me some of the trials and struggles of trying to find people that are willing to do callings and what their skill sets are. So the email that I sent him before we moved down there was my church resume. And I just simply said, we're getting ready to move into the ward. Here's the callings that I've done. Here's the callings my wife's done. We're ready to serve. Let us know when you can call us in. 
And that was our first introduction into meeting Casey Westover. He introduced us to Jared Boreen, who, as I read his name, was Boorin, but he corrected me, it was Boreen. And I started to then gather the complicated structure of relatives in the Third Ward. Because you had so many <laughs> family dynasties there of, that had been married to create power and wealth, you know, uh, <laughs> Status is there because you had the Marshes <laughs> and the Westovers, and then uh, there were the Durfies, and they were all married to each other in some way. There was a relationship there, and I was trying to keep all that straight. And so I was intro- introduced to to Jared and his wife Charlotte. Charlotte, excuse me, I'm not even speaking right. Charlotte as part of the Westover clan. That's great. I I feel like we should obliterate all the bulletins in our chapel and just have a large kind of graphic. With the Westover family, house. yeah, exactly. <laughs> Just so, oh, you're new to the ward. Okay, let us let's explain it so you know how everyone's related. I will say after uh, Sean sent that email, this is Casey. I uh, we were trying to be friendly, and they moved into the ward, and so we went over to the Boreen's house, who had a big backyard, and we set up a movie screen, and we invited the Stockfords over to watch Goonies, which we had not oh. seen, which we had not seen since we were kids and forgot how many expletives there were in that movie. And every three minutes, I was like, should we turn this off? What are we doing? Should we turn this off? Anyway, that was their introduction to the new bishop. <laughs> and, and we were thinking the same thing as we're sitting there and we're trying to remember everybody's name and who we all just met there. And we realized that everybody there was a member of the church and member of the ward, and we're like, okay, the bishop's cool with this? You know, <laughs> it's his it's his gig that he's putting on here, and uh, I'm surprised, because I as well had forgotten what the movie was like. <laughs> I remember loving it as a kid. It yeah, was a great movie. Great. And then you, it's, it's a very funny thing, though, when you go back and you see some of these things that you thought as a kid, and you're like, oh, yeah, that's not so great. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, no, no. It, and stuff that seems really benign. Like, we went back and watched Back to the Future with Owen, <laughs> And forgot there there are a few very select words they say in that movie that maybe he repeated like 249 times in the car (laughs) after that, you know. But, you know, doesn't that just show that we're all great followers of the gospel, that we can remember the best things and not the worst things of people in events life? Way to make a positive out of a negative event. That's exactly what we needed to hear right now. And since we have three bishops here and one soon to be. He's just getting ready to understand. And he's right already bishop material with that attitude, you know. Exactly. Ready to go. Exactly. Well, <laughs> Sean, I wanted to I wanted to talk with you a little bit about something that I think has been important to you for a long time. So you and I overlapped as bishops of I was bishop of third ward or still am. Uh, and you were Bishop of Fifth Ward and really honestly helped me a lot uh, as I was getting my feet wet and learning. So thank you for that. You talked a lot about the importance of public speaking in your life and how Toastmasters help you to develop a lot of skills. So I'd, I was just curious what that process was like for you. I think we should probably clarify for those who don't know the history. So when I first moved here, I was in Third Ward for four years, and then we bought a house and moved into Fifth Ward. So that's why, if anybody's trying to follow the the math here, is that why you and I were bishops at the same time. I was introduced to Toastmasters by a a good family friend back out in New Albany, Indiana, when I was finishing up school out there. And he was a lawyer, and and I chose not to hold that against him. 
but he was a great guy and he belonged to Toastmasters. And he says, you know, you do pretty good when you give a talk in Sacramento. You ought to come join this club with us as you're going to do nothing but laugh all day. Now I'm young and I didn't know that there were business associations, that there were business groups. I didn't know of any of these things that were out there like Rotary and Kiwanis and uh, BNI and all these other associations that businessmen try to be involved with either for improvement or networking opportunities. So I went with him and he was right. We laughed our heads off that day. It was so much fun. And I saw an opportunity. I thought, wow, I can speak more than once a year in church is all I get to speak. And I had fallen in love with speaking on my mission which then went into college, and I was always wanting more opportunities to do that. So Toastmasters became an opportunity. And for those who don't know what Toastmasters is, it started in the early 1900s as a group of businessmen getting together, wanting to improve their sales process capabilities, trying to have better communication skills. And it is just like sometimes in the public speaking class in, in school, you're going to give a talk on a very specific subject, maybe it's persuasive, maybe it's an argumentative, maybe it's an informative, but you're given a style of talk to give, you're going to research it, the group gets together, They, you have a time limit, you can't be under, you can't be over, or you're penalized, they penalize your ums, your ahs, your ands, your nos, they then will criticize, I want to say criticize, they will evaluate your skills at meeting the task at hand for that talk. Maybe you needed to focus on uh, hand gestures, maybe you needed to focus on argumentative transitions. And then they'll have somebody evaluate the evaluator to make sure that he was fair and just, to make sure that they didn't whitewash you, make sure that they found some things for you to work on as well. There's always the joke of the day. There's the think on your feet moment. There's just a lot of fun in that. And so I have been involved with it off and on for 17 years, and I've just thoroughly enjoyed it. So whenever I have an opportunity, sometimes employment has made it difficult for me to do that, but when employment responsibilities change and I have an opportunity to get back into that, then I always look for that opportunity. I'm curious, too, the impact that had on your both professional life and also in leadership in the church. So one of the skills that you learn in there is being able to think on your feet. They have an opportunity where Every time you meet, somebody's going to be in charge of an improvisational or an impromptu topic where they're going to have a topic of the day and you are given one minute's notice to come up with two minutes of material and think on your feet. And then you're voted on to see who does the best. Those are some of my most favorite opportunities and moments I've had, especially also that transition from being on my mission. We did a lot of door knocking and I always loved the opportunity to think on my feet and to see what we could do with that. Professionally, I tended to steer towards sales more and having an opportunity to do the elevator pitch with confidence, to be able to handle questions with confidence and be prepared to give any kind of presentation at the last minute's notice made a huge difference in my ability to communicate with any employees that I was over or any future customers or clients or just to simply in ward mission or as a ward mission leader to be able to handle anything that came up at that moment. I, I knew I could talk and I knew I could project confidence. And I knew I could be entertaining if I needed to be. And those are all things that I enjoyed doing. Cool. And I'm curious to impact on just ability to, you know, speak in public it, through your church calling, you know, while giving a talk or a fireside, other things like that. Meant that Let's go with a calling. So 
early on after we had finished school and I moved back to my hometown, the high council at that time, if you were a high council person, you then were going to speak once a month and you were responsible for finding your own junior speaker. And they would always grab on to the return missionaries. They would always grab on to some people that were new in the area. But in a small stake in rural eastern Oregon, there weren't that many people to go around for 12 high councilmen to share. And often it was the wife that would have to, at the last minute, accompany them and be the junior speaker. So the wife always hated hearing that the husband was going to be called to the high council because she knew that she was going to be speaking a portion of the time (laughs) in that stake. So I went up to... The high councilman that was in our ward that was serving out of our ward, and he also happened to be my home teacher at the time, and I saw an opportunity to get more public speaking opportunities in because I was in Toastmasters, and I had a a book of 10 speeches to complete. Now, if I went through the process of Toastmasters, I might get a talk in once every six or seven months as something came around my turn to talk. But they said they would let me use high council talks as equivalent, and I could have somebody just grade me in that. So I saw that as an opportunity to speed that process up. So I went to this home teacher of ours, uh, Brother McCracken, and I just said, I'll make you a deal. I will be your guaranteed junior speaker for the next 18 months. You just have to tell me when and where I need to be and what the topic is, and I will always be there. The man literally cried right there because he saw (laughs) he didn't have to worry about it for the next several months. And then as word got out that he never – he started telling of this – his you know windfall that he had to the other high councilman, and I started getting approached by other high councilmen. Well, do you think it can handle two in a day, or you know three in a day? Well, the stakes are pretty, the wards are pretty spread out. We just didn't have travel; wouldn't make that happen. But that was an opportunity early on as a church calling to to take on public speaking. And then it became that I would often tell the bishops, "Look, all you got to do is give me a nod. If somebody doesn't show up, I've always got a pocket talk." It's never been used. I have never been asked to do that. I have been warned, hey, we don't know if this person is going to come, and then they walk onto the stand just as the closing song or the opening song is being finished. But I've uh, always enjoyed being able to do that as well. Oh, this is so dangerous. It's like, Sean, I know you're not in my ward, but yeah. <laughs> I'm missing my speakers today. Yeah. Oh, man, that's great. In fact, some of the – when I was high council in this stake – before they started using stake leaders as junior speakers, there were a couple times that you would have stake high councilmen would have to go to two wards and speak in the same day, mm-hmm. and they would try to get them spaced apart. And there were a couple times the person who was in charge of the schedule scheduled me for three wards in that day, and I was able. I loved it. I was able to do it. Was running, you know, driving real fast to get to the next ward. But everybody else was like, "I did my one talk today. I'm out of here." And I'm like, "Oh, okay, I got two more." So, run and go do it. I had, I wanted to pose a, a question to the panel here, and this is another one of those. I, I feel like I do one of these per episode, but the semi-controversial, so I'll just, uh, you know, you guys can throw me under the bus for that. That's fine. But, you know, in our in our faith tradition, one thing that's really unique and pretty cool is that we get an opportunity to speak in public earlier than most people do in their lives. I, I think another part of our tradition is we often don't get a lot of prep time. You know, we're called a week before sometimes and we're told, hey, you're going to give a talk. And then the follow up we get is, hey, good job on your talk. Right. So my question is, you know, do we think that it is appropriate or even encourageable for members to practice their public speaking skills? And and I'm just curious, go around the room here. What are you guys' thoughts? 
as far as actually like going, taking like a formalized class, um, you know, it's funny because I think sometimes it's when it's not as polished that you sometimes get some of the greatest pearls. Um, for instance, last a couple weeks ago, was it last week or two weeks ago, we had the youth do the, the talks and they weren't necessarily like, you know, as refined as you would want, but man, that was a great sacrament meeting. So I think there's definitely value in being able to get up and share a message that you've kind of thought through, mm-hmm. but it, sometimes the imperfections are okay. You know, I know that for me, I, you know, we grew up in the church and so we started speaking when we were in primary just getting up and doing your three little minutes spiels and then I, but i i think one of the my biggest refining fires and learning how to to be comfortable speaking was when i lived in hawaii because we had people that, like our youth speakers would drop off all the time and i had this uh this guy this local guy who'd come up to me brother medina and he'd come up i'd be up there at the sacrament table getting ready to bless the sacrament and he'd be like brother brother and give you a big old <laughs> hi and you're like I need you to give me five minutes today. And you're like, like today, today? <laughs> and you're like, I'm like, all right, we'll figure something out. And I've never been afraid to speak since then. Like that freaked me out at the yeah. first time. But like, I probably did that like five times when I was in that ward and it was good and it was great. And I, so I think it's, I think there's a lot that can be had just by going through the process and just kind of get thrown in the fire. Um, I think there's nothing wrong with trying to perfect it, but I think if if there are, if the main thing is just being willing, willing to sh- be share what is really important to you, and you share your your heartfelt things rather than just doing you know get up and reading and somebody else's talk. Mm-hmm. I think when you share those things that are um, the spirit will come through just by through that bearing of, of true and personal testimony. I, I almost think about it the other way around. First of all, I commend you for doing Toastmasters. I think you even invited me once to to do, and I nothing more in the world that I never want to do. I, I just don't want. To, I don't want to do that. I don't want to be put on the spot. I don't want to do that. However, I feel like my church opportunities to speak have made me far more comfortable in my business life. In my, yeah. you know, so I see it the other way that the, my church experience has prepared me for the other side. Now, you know, you got to be careful when you're talking to business people not to accidentally bear your testimony at the end, <laughs> but <laughs> because you get comfortable with that. I remember once um, done a lot of firesides, and we did just like you guys back to back to back wards that we were speaking and giving firesides or, or lessons. And I remember we did three in one day, and the first one I was so focused, and the second one felt really good, but the third one, I was just like, I got this, you know, I'm on autopilot now. And I got up and I couldn't do it. I like, I, I was losing it. I wasn't, the message wasn't connecting. The spirit wasn't there. My stories weren't going. And I sat down and I was like, what, what just happened? And it was the, in that moment that I realized that you need the spirit to, to, to give those kind of talks. And I, I was alone in that moment. Mm. I, I started relying on myself instead of on the Spirit. So uh, I think that, that those moments are really powerful teaching moments. I don't want to be too prepared, like Jared mm. said. I think I want to have that ability to feel the Spirit and follow that, you know, that guidance. Well, they both just hit on a very uh, prominent topic there, simply is there's a difference between having your talk polished and being a polished speaker. Yeah. yeah. So I learned really quick as I, after I'd been in Toastmasters for several years, I decided I want to enter their competitions. They would have speaking contests twice a year and you would have it at the local level and then a regional level and then a district level. And you'd get up all these different levels and they would eventually would have a worldwide 
because it's a global organization and you could make it to a global one. I never made it past the fourth level ever. They'll always get beat by a little old lady. They're cute, they're adorable, and you can't beat them. It's just impossible. <laughs> but I did learn a lesson one time because I got tired of getting beat by little old ladies. And I thought, okay, I am going to polish my talk so well yeah. that I know every facial cue, every gesture, every inflection. I'm going to practice it so minutely and perfectly. And I gave that talk and it was the worst score I've ever gotten. And somebody from my club was there and, and who knew my speaking style and knew what I was capable of, said, what happened? I said, I don't know. I practiced thing, this thing for three weeks solid. And we talked about how much time I spent on it. She goes, that's what it is. You weren't spontaneous. You lost that little bit of, as Jared would say, imperfections. You lost that little bit of realism. You became a robot. Yeah. And from then on, I, I have then adopted my policy that if I'm getting ready for a talk, it is simply to flesh it out in my mind the night before, to time myself twice just for timing, and then I don't do another thing. And then, the, and most people, if they've noticed me, if I sit on the stand, I grab a piece of paper and I write a quick outline of the main points, and that's my talk. And then I'm usually from memory from there. But it gives you the opportunity to look at audience members, as Jared was saying, with the imperfections. Mm -hmm. You're not on auto mode, you're on there, you're looking at the, the different people in the audience, you're actually showing them that, hey, I'm thinking of the next topic I need to bring up because you'll have a slight pause and it makes it more real. So everything that these two guys just said is, is spot on. And then as Casey said, you throw in the spirit and then you can't lose. Yeah, I've always found that some of the best talks I've ever given were the ones where I went completely off script. Where you started off and you had this full idea of what you're gonna get, you're gonna, you're gonna share, and you get up there and you're like, that is not what I'm supposed to share today. And then yeah. you just be able to, you leave that room for the spirit to be able to to guide what you're supposed to say. And sometimes it's, it's you know, I think this is what I prepared is what I'm supposed to share. And other times you get up and you're like, yeah, this is what we're going to talk about today. And sometimes you get up in there and, and you only have five minutes left because, you know, your wife went right extra long. And, it's, tough and you're having, really <laughs> it's tough having that confidence, yeah. though, to be able to to do that. You know, I spent a week preparing this talk and then I get up there and, okay, why are you telling me to talk about something else? I don't, you know, then that's really when you have to put confidence in the spirit to just lead you to where, to where, to where you need to go. Because so many people would find the idea of tossing your talk at that moment mortifying. I'm just frightening. Oh, yeah. it's, it's yeah. so painful. But I, I think that how you get ready for that moment is having the well to draw from. You know, that's great point. And, and, you know, part of that's being able to recognize and, and follow the spirit. And part of that's just understanding the gospel and having something to talk about in a variety of different topics. Yeah. So this just happened uh, a month ago. I was the junior speaker with Tony Saxman because they were having stake, uh, stake leadership talk. So I was in stake young men's presidency and they asked me to go there. And one of my pet peeves, especially when I was in high council, being the senior or the second speaker is you would never have enough time because the middle speaker or the first one would always go way over time. And as Jared says, you got five minutes left and you're trying to condense. So I've always made it a point of mine that if I had seven to nine minutes, it was going to be seven to nine minutes. So I sit down next to Tony and he's, I'm the first speaker and he says he's got, he shows me and I look and he's got like five typewritten pages. And I said, it's going to be seven to nine minutes. I'll, you'll have your time. He goes, well, great, you know. And then, as Jared said, you're sitting there, and oh wait, I, I'm supposed to be, I'm supposed to be talking about something else. And that's what happened. That top, what I had written on my outline went out the door, and the topics I was supposed to talk came into my head, 
And I sat down and looked at Tony and I said, you got six minutes left. Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) And he sat there shuffling his papers trying to (laughs) furiously, okay, these are my main points. And I felt so bad for it. But yeah, it just happens. And and he just looked at me. (laughs) He's like, okay, we've talked together before. You know how this works. (laughs) So I have to ask uh, Levi though. So you here we are. We've all spoken many times in church. You've given you get at least one talk in church in Sacrament Maine. Yeah, I think I've given like two or three. I gave one recently at the men's priesthood meeting. Yeah. Oh, that's right, right. And then I gave two in our sacrament meeting. And then I gave one like two, maybe one or two years ago in a youth sacrament meeting. But like. I feel like it's a really good experience for the youth, especially because you learn how to do all these things at a young age, and that leaves more room for improvement for you. You know what's amazing, though? So hearing you say that, because you you're 13 year, right? Yeah. You've already given three talks in front of at least 100 people. You spoke at a stake meeting, so you were in a couple hundred people. Many of them you don't know. Do you realize how few adults have done that in their lives? Like, it's a pretty rare thing. And yet here you are at 13. Yeah, and let and alone it, your peers at school, you yeah. know? Yeah. Being able to be confident in that you're able to get there and feel good about it. It's great. Now. So here we are talking about how we do it. How do you, when you prepared your talks, were you like, all right, I'm just going to write this thing out. We're going to get up and read it. Or what, what were you or your process look like? So I have a, I have a problem with writing my talks like really late. Like I procrastinate a lot. <laughs> oh, you mean like everyone? <laughs> yeah. That's where the best material comes from. Though. <laughs> when I try, when I write a talk, I like to just let the spirit guide. Like if I have a, if I have a topic, sometimes I'll read up on it in the scriptures or just think about it. And that's normally where I get all my ideas from. Yeah. That's awesome. That's so good. So now that this is, in the is going to be in the internet ether that you said this was a great idea for youth to do. You can't roll your eyes when you get asked or invited the next time <laughs> to, to speak. And all your peers can thank you when they get offered to speak. <laughs> awesome. Yeah. Oh. So I'm I'm glad that uh conversation went that direction. Honestly, I just I think it's an important topic and and things that I'm pulling from what you guys said is that we do have a unique faith tradition in which we get up and speak and sometimes we're not super polished. We don't spend 6 months preparing for, you know, our equivalent of the sermon. But from that lack of polish, sometimes we get real raw expression of testimony and belief. Um as long as I I'm, I'm hearing come prepared to feel the spirit and let it guide. And and that's the real, you know, that's the real factor here. So thank you so much for that, guys. Um, I can say that I struggle with, just as much as Jared can understand why I don't want to run a marathon with him, I can't understand why people don't want to public speak. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and I know that that's something that most people just would rather never do in their life ever. And I just don't understand that. And I struggle with that to not put them at a defensive when I talk to them about things like this, so, but it's just something I enjoy. So. Yeah, and I, I'm I'm with you on that, and it, it's because we see the benefit professionally too. Yeah. I think just in so many different areas. So um, even just being able to tell a good story when you're with friends, you know, there's value in that. So let's let's go around the room here. We got some other stuff to get into. Let's start with Casey. Okay. First of all, um, 
for those of you that don't know this, Bishop Keister sends out a what do we call this? Pre-show notes. Show yeah. notes um, to the person in advance, and Sean filled out all these questions with very humorous, funny. Funny things. I won't go into them. I just think it speaks to your character that you find comedy in a lot of these things, which is great. Um, I um, I have the advantage of having been um, bishop when you came into the ward, um, and both you and Jared were my counselors at one point. But before you were my counselor, you were Sean. You were a um, ward mission leader for us, and mm-hmm. I remember one of the projects that you set out on. And this is just my memory was to log everybody's testimony in the ward. Do you remember that project? Yep. It wasn't everybody that was a uh, that was conversion. All everybody's conversion stories. That's right. what it was. Um, and by the way, I went looking for that the other day and I cannot find that. I don't know if you still have that. But it was so, so cool. We had maybe 40 or 50 different conversion stories. Um, and that I was just so impressed by by that. And I saw right away just how missionary-minded you were as a ward mission leader. I mean, honestly, our numbers went through the roof when you were a ward mission leader. I, I take no credit for that. Um, all of a sudden, we had all these people coming to church that we hadn't seen in years. And I just think that was because of your drive and your desire. And it was work. I mean, it was a lot of work. There was a lot of door knocking and visits and um, and I was always impressed with that. But what I was impressed with is that you take a salesman mindship uh, or mindset to the gospel. Uh, it's kind of the way I looked at that, is that you're a salesman at heart, and how do we apply that to to uh, the gospel? And so I'm just curious, and this wasn't the question I think I was going to ask, but you're, how do you tie your, 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 your approach to business into the gospel? We talked about Toastmasters, but how about on a daily basis within your callings, you're a salesman first and foremost, and everything, even every story you tell is almost like you're not trying to sell, but you're sharing that as a as a, a way to convince us of something. How do you how do you bring those two together? Your your life as a salesman and the gospel, and how do you see them intertwine? I always try to approach it as what the other person be asking themselves, what's in it for me? Why would I do this? Why do I care about this? A lot of times people in the gospel will just say, Well, we do it just because, or you're just supposed to want to be able to do that. I find the gospel extremely logical. I find it very a cause and effect that if you do this, this will be the reward. And that is sales right there. If you buy this now, invest in this now, if you use this product now, these are your rewards. And it's easy to point that out when you do some of the things in the gospel. So uh, if you want to be happier, follow the gospel principles. There's, there's no. You might find short-term happiness not following it, but what I've found is that people always come back to the gospel at some point in their life. Even if they don't even come back through the doors of the chapel, they'll talk with a bishop and they'll say, yeah, I know I should have come back 20 years ago and I'm just too proud or too embarrassed to do it. But they all know that the gospel is where the happiness is. So if you can show what's in it for them and how it'll affect their lives and not just simply say, you'll be a good Mormon if you do this. There is a direct payoff if you do these things. And that's how I always approach it. And so that is a direct sales model on there. But everything I approach is, why do they care? We should be asking the question, why do they care about whatever it is we want them to do and tell them why, how it's going to benefit them. Yeah, I will also say that, I, I, I mean, I, you know, you see a lot of people that work in callings. You have always just been all in. When you get a calling, you don't back off. You are all in. And so uh, that's always impressed me. Um, I'm going to segue then 
while you were ward mission leader, you had a, uh, you shared with me, and I can visually remember us standing in the foyer when you and your wife were standing there, and somebody in your family had mentioned to you something they were doing as far as uh, fasting or fast offering was concerned, and you shared that story uh, with us. And then a couple of weeks later, you shared with us the results of that. I wonder if maybe you'd share that story with us, what happened there. So this is one, and a lot of people, especially in the Fifth Ward, is that when I was bishop, heard me talk about it a lot, because this is one of my favorite topics. There's an opportunity in everybody's lives to have mountains and, and, and valleys of your testimony and the strength of your testimony. And we work on ways to get those back up to the peaks and to ride through those valleys as quick as we can. And there was a period in my life where I was being Mr. Literal Mormon, meaning I was doing the bare minimum. I guess they call that quiet quitting now. I was quiet quitting the gospel. Let's just say it that. And the topic of fast offering is... You know, the rule of thumb was whatever you would spend on the cost of those two meals for your family is what you would give in fast offerings. And I was struggling at that time in my mid-30s of noticing my peers having more vacations, bigger vehicles, bigger houses, doing more things with money than I was. I wanted to know why I wasn't there yet. So I figured if I wanted more money over here, I had to stop spending in this in the church. I would later come to realize that was the exact opposite of what I needed to do. But I figured with the right menu, on one day a month, I could feed the family on a buck sixty-five, and I would pay the literal law of a dollar sixty-five, and I got the dollar sixty-five benefit out of that. There was an opportunity a little later after that that we had a state conference, and the state president challenged the stake to double their fast offerings every six months. And I looked at my wife, and she kind of gave me the look of, we're doing this. And I realized I couldn't get out of it, so I did a couple math equations in my head. First math equation was how much longer I thought the stake president was going to be serving as a stake president, meaning <laughs> how much longer I might have to answer this question to him personally before he was released. And knowing that number then, I started then calculating, if I was doubling it every six months, by the time I figured he left, how much would I be up to? And I think I was thinking around 25, 30 bucks I might be up to in a month on fast offerings. And so I agreed reluctantly to do this with my wife. And every six months, we, we started doubling our fast offerings. And there was a, a huge change of what happens in one's life because at first you're dragging your feet paying that, and then it becomes a habit. So you're not begrudging it so much because you know it's coming, you know you're going to do it, and you just start, rather than fight with the wife, you're just going to figure out a way to make it happen. And then as those things happen, you become more noticeable of things around you, and you start to see how your life is changing. Now, looking back several years, some of the things I began to notice was I began to be more generous with my time with other people, and not just so much in serving my callings, but those of my coworkers. If they expressed a need for help or assistance, I was more willing to do those things. I was seeing things that needed to be done at work before they were being asked to be done, because I was thinking, well, Jim over there needed help with something last time. I bet she's going to need help with it again. I'm going to jump on that and just be done with it, because I know he's going to ask me anyways, and I'm just going to be uh, proactive and get it done. And as that, it starts building on yourself. And as you become more generous and less selfless in things like that, guess who tends to notice that? Your coworkers and your boss. Next thing you know, you're getting promoted. You're getting raises without actually asking for them or actually uh, petitioning for those or politicking for those things. 
And as that begins to build, you're giving more. You've, you're now you're doubling again of six months, and you you begin to double your personality and your character in service of others. And that again gets noticed by them. They're noticed as a team player. You're noticed as somebody who sees and needs to get things done. And those are all, I believe, the direct cause and effect efforts of paying a generous fast offering. So the question whenever I talk about this is, are you still doubling your fast offering? No, I'm not. It's not every six months because you get to that point of the curve where <laughs> it gets expensive. It, yeah, it, it's, 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 it's harder to do that. Doesn't mean that we still don't try. And maybe it's not doubling. Maybe it's increasing at 15%. But we're still constantly doing it because we have seen a direct effort in our lives. And it began to put an f- amount of faith into me that as I became with a new job of 100% commission sales, I had a supervisor who was also a member of the church, and we thought we would put this law of fast to a test because we were paying our fast offerings based off of the previous month's sales and the commissions we earned. And we thought, what if we paid our fast offerings on next month's hoped commissions that we would get? What if we paid in advance and we said, this would be my fast offerings based on this amount that I want to hit in sales? And it has worked every single time. Again, if you put your faith in the Lord and you tell him what you want to do with this, and again, this is quiet between you and your bishop and, and maybe you know your spouse and a close friend. You're not out broadcasting what you're doing. But if you want to get further in life, further in your career, pay a generous fast offering because it's going to change who you are and those around you will know. You cannot not change by paying a generous fast offering. So now the big question is, what's a generous fast offering? It depends on where you are financially in your career. I've said the words that when you write the check that month, it should pinch you, hurt you just a little. <laughs> you should think, that's one less trip to McDonald's. That's <laughs> that's one less time to the movies. You should be thinking, I'm giving something up to write this check to do that. That's what a generous fast offering. So it doesn't matter where you are in your financial earnings and the power that you have. It should just sting just a little bit to write that. It's one of my favorite things as bishop was tithing settlement. I absolutely loved tithing settlement because I always asked every family, how did you get your your testimony of tithing and fast offering? And it ran the wide gamut of I always watched my parents. We had one of those times of do we pay the bill? Do we pay tithing? And we pay tithing and things worked out. There's a wide gamut of how those testimonies are, but every one of them are rock solid. And you look at the ones that pay generous, 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 generous fast offerings, and they wouldn't have it any other way. You would think that they figure, well, I paid into the fund enough. I think I'm good for a few years, but that's not how they see it. They see it as, man, if I could double it tomorrow, I would. And so learning from the testimony and examples of others has always benefited me in that way. Thank you so much. I really appreciate that mindset. It's it's helped me to see fast offering a little differently too. I was just thinking of a video I watched recently. This is going to alienate half the audience, but I love golf, so you're just going to have to deal with that. <laughs> but one trend with pro golfers is actually they're starting to, on their off days, they play instead of from the back professional tees, they'll actually play up on the ladies tees. And it's kind of interesting because you say, isn't that making the game easier for you? And what they say actually is that if I play from the ladies' tees, I should expect to have a chance at a birdie every single hole. So for them, it's not about practicing different angles or things like that. It's about getting into a mindset of scoring on every hole. 
And I, I see a parallel here where it's, it's getting in the mindset of giving. And like you said, it, it translates into now I feel more apt to give of my time. Now I feel more apt to give my love to people around me because of my testimony and my foundation in, you know, giving a, a generous fast offering. I agree with you. And, and again, I am very much, I believe the gospel is cause and effect for good things. And a lot of times we hear, you should pay your fast offerings and your tithings because the windows of heaven will open up and you won't notice all the blessings. And people don't understand, well, how's that going to come about? But if you could sit there and say, it's going to change who you are, it's going to change how you think, it's going to change how you behave, and people will notice that, and that will make you a better employee, it'll make you a better coworker, it'll make you a better spouse, a better father, because it's going to change your mindset. Then they start seeing the math add up. Yep. And it makes it, they see the direct correlation of what that is, not just a, okay, I hope there's blessings and I can identify one or two, you know, there is a direct cause and effect. I have to know what you're feeding the family for $1.65 a day on. It was a few things of bread and water. So. <laughs> <laughs> He's through the prison meals. I just, I just looked at my son, Levi, who was on the panel with us, and his eyes got really big, like, a dollar. it's like $1.65, a, not even a snack, really, but... Yeah, you're you're making us go poor right now, honestly. At this current, if age Kelly made 13, the bread, yeah. we could have done it for cheaper because their cost was lower than store bread. So <laughs> so good, uh, Jared. What did you want to get into? Well, I, I'm actually going to take a little bit of a, a a right turn from our our ones that we kind of talked about before because I wanted to talk. You know, you, we've shared a lot about the blessings you've received through the, the doing these things, but you and I have talked on and off. Oh, I mean, really on for the last million years about kind of sales and kind of the ups and downs of the, how that goes. We're both in sales and it doesn't always work out the way that you, you hope for. And just recently you've had a bit of a, a change in careers. How has your faith and been able to help you kind of get you through that, that ups and downs of that? So I've had a, an opportunity to change careers and it wasn't necessarily my direction uh, it should have been in my direction because I had known for several months that I needed to do something. And I had just kind of gotten comfortable the way things were. So asking in how my faith is, my faith is a little bit on the repentance side of why didn't I act on that earlier than I knew I should have done. But having gone through, so when I first became full commission sales was two months before the economy tanked in 2007, at the end of 2007. And having gone through those four or five years of 100% commission and having four or $500 months of commission, knowing that following the gospel uh, to do food storage, because those that came in so handy, and to you know reuse it or replace, repair it, uh, or reduce it, those kind of things, following those principles, I knew that my wife and I would be taken care of. So latching on to an opportunity that I have now Yes, it was daunting. Yes, it was a little scary. Am I doing the right thing? But I knew that once I stepped forward on that boat or, you know, that vehicle, that it was going to be fine. It was going to work out. And it doesn't mean there's not going to be challenges. It doesn't mean there isn't going to be any sacrifices and some changes in life, but I knew it would work out. Yeah, I think that in, in these conversations, sometimes we get so focused on like, all right, we've, we've paid these things. It's all going to be, uh, you know, Lemons, you know, it's going to be roses. Everything's going to come up, you know, smelling perfect. And that's not the way it always is in, in life. And but I've always really appreciated your resiliency. Like you're like, all right, this is where I'm at. This we're just got to figure it out, and we're going to plow ahead. And it's not always 
as straightforward as you would want it to be. But in getting through it, you can kind of look back. And I, I, I have a feeling, you know, knowing what you're doing now and kind of going the tra- direction you're going to be out, I think you're going to do great. And I think well, you're going to look you. back at this and you're going to look back and be like, man, why didn't this happen to me like 10 years ago? I would have been <laughs> so further along. But, you know, it's definitely that times. I know I've gone through a number of different things in my career recently where I thought I was doing the right thing yeah. and, and it just didn't work out the way I was hoping to. And 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 you find I find myself like, I prayed about it. Why didn't I get, you know, the answer that I, that I thought I, you know, should have had. And um I think sometimes the Lord needs us to be able to go through those kind of like humbling moments, be able to say, all right, we need you to figure this out and be okay with it. I would agree with that. I would also say that, you know, there's a maxim out there that you are the sum of the friends you hang around with. Look who I hang around with. They're all self-employed for the most part. They're all resilient people. They've all gone through trials and tribulations and they've all rebounded. So I owe it to the crowd that I keep. So uh, that's actually leads to me to the question that I was originally going to ask is, is, you know, you've really been able to, to make your, your home a place where people want to be, you know, you, you have well, some op- people, well, you have, you have a lot of the youth up there, you know, we'll do activities up there. What has been that inspiration that has really led to you? Cause I mean, you, you've got a pool up there that I don't, I don't know if I've ever seen you in. No. <laughs> like so what makes you or like I you know I you do to, use it just not I'm too busy cooking or doing other things when you guys are out there. Yeah. So what what has led you to make this, you know, backyard paradise out there? I don't know. It's not that I ever wished we had one of my parents you know growing up. Uh, I never felt that there was a lack of that. I think I just I'll, I'll tell you what it is. As much as I exude some confidence in public speaking, I'm a big, fat, blind, deaf guy. I, I can't hear. I can't see. I've got no hair. And that is an insecurity. And I figured if I made a Shangri-La, that I could still get people to hang around me. And so that's that's where it started off with. Yeah. So out came the zip line. Out came the pool. Out came the bungee trampoline. Um, what else have we had out there? We've had ATVs. We've had the hay rides. We've had... I don't know. Sam really likes outdoor your movies. Yeah. We've had <laughs> my daughter's wedding. Your daughter's wedding was out there. Well, her reception. Yeah, uh, we've we've done a lot of different things out there. We've done uh, birthday parties out there for people. Um, family reunions. Family reunions. Family reunions. How about uh, we hosted uh, the uh, the what is it, what's the sh- musical thing we came went out and sang? Oh, we did during uh, COVID from Camorra's Hill. Yeah. What from Camorra's? I know you were you were. Probably not with it that night, but um, I'm just joking. <laughs> no, we remember we our families put together from Morris Hill, and we invited all three wards to come out. It was during COVID, oh, and so we, we couldn't do it inside. And so yeah. we everyone brought their own chair out, and we just spray yeah. spaced out. Along I think that was line. another Idaho moment for me. I tried to block out. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's the all purpose property. You know, one of the things that it, I was happy to have out there was. Um, when Dave Johnson, in his last week, and I was their home teacher, and I stopped by, and, uh, you know, they had just got back from the doctor, and I think they had just decided that they were going to go to hospice. And I'm talking to um, Melissa and um, Sister Peepgrass, 
And Sister Peepgrass, I'm talking to her, and they're saying that they decided to call all the family members in for one last, you know, meal together. And I'm listening to them, and I and I immediately I go into, okay, what do you need mode? And I'm looking at this small house, and she's telling me the number of people that are coming. I said, well, are you going to need more beds? I've got extra beds at the house. And she goes, well, yes, we're going to need to store that. And I said, okay. And I started asking, what else are you going to be doing? And uh, we, uh, they said that, well, we're going to have 40 to 50 people come. I said, where are you going to put them all? Oh, we'll just eat here in the house. I said, well, no, we're not doing that now. And I immediately called you, and I'm pointing to Casey. And I said, this is what's going on. We're going to have them come out to my place, and I need you to bring a couple bounce houses out for all the grandkids and the kids that are going to be there. And I need you to help me out with some food. And I, I think I reached out to you, Jared, as well, to help out with something. And between the three of us, we put on a pretty good spread for their whole family to come for his last seven days. And that was when I was very thankful to have the resources to do that. That is one of my proudest moments of, of hosting somebody out there. Everything else was fun, but being able to be in a position to, to to make that happen was nice. I think one thing that's pretty cool that you made me think of, Sean, is, is Corinne Bell was sharing this with me off air when we were recording a podcast, but she had just gone through trip to Israel, several other places, and you know, part of her her trip involved some teaching about some of the scriptures, actually, uh, the New Testament. And in one of the um, tours that she did, they talked with about the parable of the talents. And so often we use that as kind of metaphorical about how we use our abilities or, you know, our skills to, to help spread the gospel and things like that. But what she shared from her tour is, you know, in a lot of interpretations, that was meant to literally represent money and how we use our money. <laughs> and, um, you know, I, I think that it really helped me to see that sometimes when we choose to invest, even if it's something as simple as our money and something like that, if it's meant to grow the gospel and, and help other people that we care about, I think God sees that too and sees the value in that. I would agree. I, I would definitely agree that uh, there's opportunities to come out, you know. And for a while there, you know, when everybody kept coming out to, to the house for barbecues and I kept saying, guys, it doesn't always have to be at about our place. We're happy to come to your place and come in because everybody's driving, you know, 15 miles to get out to my place. And nobody has ever taken me up. To, I mean, it's, unless it's bad weather, like Christmas time or something, is the only time that I come back into town to get your places out Yeah, there. well, Jared's swimming pool is only a foot deep and five <laughs> feet across. So it's, it's not the same. <laughs> oh, that's good. Well, Levi, you, I wanted to give you another chance because you had a couple of things marked down here. Um, so we kind of talked about your place. One of the youth activities we did was woodworking, and I'd like to know how you got started in woodworking. I do have a love of woodworking. It doesn't mean I'm good. I just like doing it. My dad, well, my grandfather came through the Depression. He built his own house, and he was always, I can build that. We don't need to spend money on that. And that then bled off onto my dad, and my dad had always been, he, he had been a teacher for the first several years of, uh, you know, I was alive, and so they didn't have a lot of money, and so he had to to uh, improvise and fix and repair and build himself the things that he wanted, and then that developed into a love that he had, but he, late in life, my dad never had what I would call a best friend buddy until he was in his, I want to say, late 40s, early 50s, 
They had some casual couples that were good friends, but not, nobody that would say, this is the guy I can fight in. You know, this is somebody that I can trust. And that man moved into my dad's life when they moved into the ward, and they became lifelong friends. And he shared a love of woodworking as well. And their wives gave him a number one rule of, you can't spend any of the regular paycheck money on tools. So you got to figure out how you're going to buy your tools. And so they converged on our garage and turned it into a wood shop. And it was just it was one of those that you had to walk sideways through because there was no room. And they had it full of projects and sawdust was coming out the ears. But they would make outdoor furniture, planter boxes, and sell at the local nursery. And that would allow them to buy more tools and they would make more stuff. And they just went on through that. And then they would take on a few projects. And, and from there is the things that I've always enjoyed. I learned real quick early on in marriage how happy it made my wife when I made something and saved her some money. I then ran with that. I think that was a really good activity for the youth because I feel like we've been doing a lot of activities with the youth that, and young men's especially, that we've been learning life skills. Like we did woodworking and then we did welding and now we're doing archery next week. I can't do it because I have football, but it's just a really good, I feel like we're getting our young men's activities more prepared. So that's an interesting three topics that you listed there. <laughs> I, know, I was, gonna say, so <laughs> I, I was with you over the first two of how you might use those, but archery, I don't know if there was much call for that anymore. But he's waiting uh, for the apocalypse. Yeah, you know, yeah. that way he's going to go out <laughs> yeah. and hunt. He's going he to yeah. be bringing now a home uh, dinner. Exactly. The he zombie was, apocalypse specifically, right? <laughs> One of my favorite jobs right out of college, I went to work for an archery manufacturer and I was supposed to be in charge of graphic design, but they ended up putting me in sales. And that's where I got introduced to that. But I had never done archery more than Boy Scout camp. And now I'm in a company that makes high-end equipment, very high-end. I fell in love with that sport. It was so much fun to do what they called at that time 3D archery. It's just like playing golf. But they have, instead of a golf green out there, you have a uh, an animal out there, you know, a foam animal. And you step up the tee, you shoot your arrows, and you walk around the course, 18 holes. And I went out to my first one, and I saw all these bubbas, big red beers, coveralls, you know, just what you expect from an archery <laughs> crowd. Nicest guys, they just wrapped their arms around me and said, this is how you do it, and walked me through it. And I absolutely fell in love with that. So hopefully you guys get the same bug for archery and have an opportunity to do some of those things. Yeah, you know, you never know when you're going to use it, right, Levi? I mean, you guys could live to see the zombie apocalypse, <laughs> and then you'll be laughing, right? I no. mean, you'll you probably be crying, but... <laughs> you know, you, you'll you have the archery skill at least, which would be great. I will admit that what fueled my love for archery was getting everything for free. I didn't have to pay for any <laughs> archery equipment, and I had the top-of-the-line stuff. So that made sure I was never frustrated other than my own skill. Well, Sean, I I, I think we need to get into the 10-cow wife story. And I understand that there's a little backstory to that too. There is. And so – what I'll do is I'll tell it in a couple segments and then I'll leave a pause that way you can edit it out if you don't if you're short on time. <laughs> we well we do have an expletive contained in the episode button I can click. So there that's not an expletive. <laughs> it's an innuendo. Innuendo. That's much better. Yeah. Okay. So what's amazing about having the opportunity to tell these stories is that my version gets better and better over the years and includes a little more embellishments, and I'm upfront about those embellishments. It drives Kelly crazy. <laughs> So coming back from my mission, having a new love of speaking on porch steps, I had an opportunity at Rick's College to take a public speaking course. And I took that course thinking I was going to ace it, and I did really, really good in there. One of the topics was an informative talk. I had to prevent or present something that would teach something to everybody else. At the same time, 
I'm a hot commodity only because in the dating world, I'm an RM. If you have the title RM in a church school, it doesn't matter what you look like, you're somewhat of a hot commodity. So I had a car, I had a job, I had three jobs, and I was willing to spend the money on people around me because I was trying to buy their attention. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> the problem that we had is guys in the dorm, you got 40 guys on the floor, is every Friday and Saturday night, you came back to debrief. I just got off a date. Oh, how'd that go? I don't know. She did this. She didn't do this. She said that. She didn't say this. What do you think that means? And we're trying to decode all the dating body language and behaviors and trying to figure out were we a success or not that night. And I thought, well, I'm going to kill two birds with one stone. And I went and interviewed all the girls in two of the girls' dorms. I said, I'm conducting a speech survey, and this is what I want to know. <laughs> when you, how do you tell a guy? You, how do you imply to a guy that you want to hold his hand or that, to put his arm around you? And all the things you'd want to know about dating. And I had this Bible <laughs> that where guys would come back and say, okay, this is what happened. And I'd flip out my notes and said, well, according to the survey, this is what it, this is what the, the message was. Either you missed it or you were off cue or you were spot on. Uh, yeah, wait, wait, call time, her back for a second date. Time out here. So they were willingly sharing this information with you? They it's, wanted it's everybody to know it. Okay, Levi, are you listening to this right now? Because <laughs> do you do you have a copy of this report? No, let's be honest. That report is well outdated. Uh, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's well, very you need to be able to know what emojis they're going to be putting out there. That's going to be. Yeah. But anyways, I had all this wealth of information. At the same time, my dad and my mom met at BYU Provo on a blind date and were engaged 11 days later. And my dad and my mom were married 50-plus years. My dad absolutely loved the institution of marriage, and he wanted all of his kids to, to enjoy that same uh, joy that he had from out of So me being the oldest and the first in college, every phone call on Sunday was, hey, are you engaged yet? Are you dating anybody yet? And I got tired of it. Kelly was in my social group of guys and girls, and none of us were dating. We were just in a group that hang around each other. And I got off my phone call. She told me I was frustrated, and I said, yeah, my dad again bugging me about if I'm married yet or engaged yet, meeting anybody yet. And I knew I was going to go home in a month for a three-day weekend and then come back. And I just looked at Kelly, and I said, oh, I ought to take you home and introduce you as my fiancé just to shut him up. And she says, oh, that would be so funny. Now, here's where my version differs from Kelly's version of this story. <laughs> is the night before I was getting ready to leave, she calls up and says, okay, I'm all packed and ready to go. I'm like, what? She goes, yeah, you're going to take me home to visit you. I said, that was just a joke. I'm not doing that. She goes, I've been stuck in Rexburg for a year straight, haven't been able to go home. I've got to get out of this town. You've got to take me. After a little convincing, I call home. Mom, can I bring somebody home? She goes, yes. And so I bring her home. And this is when VHS movies was still a big thing. And living in a small town of 3,000 people, Friday night was run to the video store, pick out a movie or two and come back. So we watch a movie and Kelly and I are sitting together and we go through, I think, one or two movies. Uh, that's on a Saturday night, excuse me. So the next morning as we're getting ready for church, my dad yells up from the top of the stairway and says, Sean, get up here. So I go up there and I don't know what he's mad about, but I could tell there's a tone in his voice. And I said, you know, first thing I offered was, Dad, I stayed in my bedroom the whole night, didn't touch her, didn't do anything. And he goes, you know, your mom and I haven't been in the dating world for a long time, but even I know when a girl wants you to hold her hand, she was giving you the signal. What's your problem? I knew that Kelly was a little bit naive in that area, and I just said, Dad, you don't know her. She doesn't date much. She just didn't know what she was doing. It was totally innocent. A few minutes later, my mom yells at me from the top. Sean, get up here. Mom, <laughs> I stayed in my room. I didn't touch her. You know, She goes, no, your dad and I haven't been dating for a while, but even I know when a girl wants you to date, hold her hand, what was your problem? I said, again, she's naive. You don't know. 
I go back downstairs. Now, Kelly's heard my parents yell my name twice in a, in a mad tone. And she goes, what's going on? I said, you'll never believe this. And she goes, yeah, you got this book of, of all the stuff, and I'm clearly giving you the signal to hold my hand. <laughs> and I said, oh. So from that moment on, we were dating. So that led to... Wait, wait. So how how is that different from her story then? Is she, she, is she going to vouch for this? Everything about, except for calling up the last minute, she will say that I confirmed with her, hey, you're still going to my parents' house, right? All right. And I'm going to say, no, you just invited yourself along. <laughs> <laughs> so that led into us dating. And that led into, <clears throat> as, I, as I'm building up to why all this happened, it means to each other. So that led to the culture at a Mormon school. In that, if there's a major event such as prom or morp, which is prom spelled backwards, which would be the girl ask guy dance, which this particular story is centered around, is Kelly had asked me, is you have to do it in a very creative way and you answer in a creative way. So Kelly had asked the dorm parents, two little kids to dress up like Snow White and a dwarf, gave me an apple, and it had a little plastic worm in it that had a code in there. Now, this tells you how not worried we were with security at that time because it had her social security number, which was her student ID number, which you could go to any of the computers on campus, type it in and find out the name and phone number and address. <laughs> so crazy. Okay. <laughs> you can't do that now. But and that was what it was. And so there was a little poem that says, Will you go to Morp with me? And and then you had to find out who it was and it was Kelly. So now I'm just racking my brain of how to creatively answer her back and do something that's just going to knock her socks off. I had known that her family were big fans of Monty Python and the Holy Grail. I had never seen the movie, but every single companion I had had and quoted it all the time. I knew all the major quotes of the movie and most of the quotes from the TV series. So I knew what I needed to do. I had a roommate also at the time who was a science major, had no interest in dating, very, very naive. And I said, I've only got a little time to do this. I've got to go buy some coconuts. And I need you to come up with a script that says, hear ye, hear ye. You, I accept the date. And, you know, be creative. With it. You take care of that. Now, I'm off in Rexburg, Idaho to find coconuts in March. And I found some. And I don't know if everybody understands in the viewership where the coconuts come into play. But in the movie... The main characters are riding horses like stick ponies. They don't actually have a horse. And they have a guy that walks behind them clapping coconut shells to make it sound like the galloping noise of a horse. As I'm putting this all together, a couple of the guys on my floor start saying, what are you doing? I tell them, oh, can I be a part of that? Yeah, that sounds great. I soon have almost all the guys on the floor. I have 40 guys dressed in bathrobes, buckets on their heads. My roommate and I are in behind them, and we're clapping the whole coconuts together. And we have to go diagonally across campus because we're going to go into and I prearranged with her early English lit teacher to allow me to come in and interrupt class to do this answer, who also happened to be our ward bishop. So we're going across campus, and we didn't think anybody was paying attention until a week later we saw our picture in the school newspaper. We were in the newspaper because, I mean, there's 40 guys. <laughs> hopping like they're riding horses with two guys clapping coconuts together <laughs> across campus. We we open, we go up the stairs into the building, we open the, the, the doors to the building, and we start going down the hallway. And Kelly tells me later on that she knew something was up for her because she could hear the commotion of the coconuts <laughs> and everybody stomping their feet coming in. We bust open the door to the classroom, 
And some of the guys were just playing in it so well. They acted like they had stallions they couldn't keep under control. And they're trying to rein them in. And they're hopping around all over the classroom. And they're trying to get them under control. And they finally get them. And then we line up three deep across one wall of the classroom there. And my roommate and I are in the back. And I take my roommate and I push him forward out in the front. And he starts going off as I delegated to him to do. And as he said, he got done. But I had not proofread. And he said, hear ye, hear ye, Kelly Dietrich, Sean Stockford hereby accepts your invitation to go to the Morp dance and you will have a wondrous time and blah, 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 blah. And I'm not, I'm just saying, okay, this is almost over and we can get out of here. And then he goes, and he promises to protect you with his sword of excitement. <laughs> and there was an audible gasp from our bishop that was there to some of the other classrooms that were in our ward were there. And as soon as I put two and two together, now you got to remember, I'm deaf, so I'm not able to read his lips because he's in front of me, but I'm repeating. And the other guys are looking at me and go, did he say what I thought he said? And I just reached through three rows of guys and I grab his shoulder and I yank him out of there. And we're just clapping the coconuts really fast to get out of there. <laughs> so over the next week or two, every time we were walking in, if there was somebody that was in our ward or somebody that was in that class, would ask how the sort of excitement was. And it was just something I couldn't get lived down. So she had that story on me that she could always bring up and just drive a little needle into me if she wanted to. A month later, I'm over at her apartment, and I somehow got a hold of a picture that her roommate took of her where she has a, a hair, her hair up in a towel, a mud mask, a ratty sweatshirt on, and torn and ratty pajamas on, and she's posing. I thought... I could do something with this. <laughs> so I took the picture <laughs> and I held it for another month because then we were out of school and I had to go back home to Oregon and she went back home to Indiana and she got a job working in the cement factory where her dad worked because they would hire college students in the summer and her dad had made it an op uh, possible for her to get hired to do that. And she was the token college kid to a lot of the mentality of a cement factory worker people there. And she got teased about that a lot. But I mean, she did her job. She learned to drive a forklift and she got so good at driving a forklift that she could pick a quarter up off the ground with the forks. So she was really good at that. But during break time, it was common for everybody to go to the break room, harass each other while they were having a beverage or a snack and to read the, the newspaper that was the town newspaper. Her birthday was coming up on June 20th, and so I thought it would be romantic and somewhat funny if I published that photo in her town newspaper and said, happy birthday. Oh, my goodness. And then I named her Kelly Dietrich. Oh, oh. So she goes into break, and they all just start busting, and they show her. And she calls me, and I'm worried because she's not furious. She's like, ha, 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 well, I don't like it. That's Okay. That makes me worried because I know she's Irish and I know that she's going to do something more. So that's the beginning of the summer. Over the summer, I pretty much know I'm going to ask her to marry me. So I call up her mom and I say, look, I'm going to come out and propose to her. And what we're going to do is we had arranged that while I served my mission in Indiana and she lived in Southern Indiana, she didn't live in my mission boundaries. We just happened to meet after my mission. But it would be two birds, one stone. I would drive out there, pick her up swing by and meet some people off from my mission. And the whole time, my 15-year-old uh, sister would be the chaperone. She would tag along and be the chaperone for us. 
So I told my mother-in-law, my soon-to-be mother-in-law, said, hey, I want to come out and I want to ask her to marry me. And this is what I want to do. I want you to arrange some reason for the family to get together. And I'm going to show up earlier than normal. And I'm going to ask her to marry me. I said, now, don't tell anybody. Well, she told everybody but Kelly. (laughs) So the plan was... I'm driving across country for three days, and I am just all nervous. I mean, you're going to ask somebody to marry him for eternity. Can you provide? Can you support? Are you going to meet their expectations? And and I knew she was going to say yes because this was the year The Little Mermaid came out, and there's a resemblance of Kelly, who can sing, and Redhead, that she was somewhat of a mermaid. And she had sent me a video because, again, we didn't have the internet. We didn't have texting. So she sent me a video cassette of her singing Part of Your World. And then she would tell me in a, on the phone call, she goes, I had a dream that we were all dressed in white, but you weren't there. What do you think that means? I'm like, <laughs> not a clue. Not a clue what it means. And my mom finally came up and slapped me up against the head when I was just got off a 12-hour shift of driving truck. And she, I was trying to go to sleep. And she goes, when are you going to ask that girl to marry you? I said, well, I guess I better start on that. And that was how I knew I was going to do it. It was my mom hitting me. So I collaborated with my soon-to-be mother-in-law. So the plan was is that... Kelly thinks I'm going to arrive on a Friday, that the family and their friends are going to have a going away barbecue dinner for her on Thursday. And I'm going to arrive actually on Thursday and they're going to hide me somewhere and I'm going to pop out and say surprise and I'll you know propose to her from there. This barbecue is over at a the family friend of theirs that's about 15 minutes away who now that I'm thinking about it, he had a place kind of like what I have. He had a couple <laughs> acres and he set it up where everybody could come. Maybe that's where this came from. But anyways, uh, and that in order for me to, and again, we didn't have GPS or cell phones, so in order for me to find my way over there, I would go to her house. Her teenage brother was supposed to be feigning that he was sick and, and not go to the barbecue, but he would be waiting for me at the house. I could shower and change after driving for three days, and then he would give us directions on how to get over there. And that they would put me in a closet, and, and then, you know, surprise, I would pop out of the closet. So I am just nervous. You know, I know what's going to happen in the next 20 minutes. We start driving over there. My brother-in-law, again, I've never met him before. He's 14 or 15 at the time. Uh, The most brilliant safety orange uh, color, uh, safety orange of hair. He's the brilliant redhead, pasty white. I mean, I'm trying to get used to this. And this is in uh, August. And every time he would look at me, he would start giggling. And the more he looked at me, the more he giggled and the more pronounced it got. And he would say, turn left here, turn right there. And we get ready to turn onto a, a, a state highway, it's four lanes. And now he's just giggling. And I'm like, what, is, what kind of family am I getting ready to be married into? And my sister's behind me and she's kind of like, yeah, this is a weird guy. And just as I turn on that road, all of a sudden there's blue and red lights in my, in my rearview mirror. And I said, oh, this is something I don't need right now. And my brother-in-law is now just laughing his head off. And so, you know, you do anytime you get pulled over, you do you start thinking, okay, where's my wallet? Where's my driver's license? Where's my insurance? And you're looking in the side mirror to see what the state cop's doing. Is he getting out of his car? What's he doing? And I see the state cop get out of his car, and I can see he's holding a piece of paper, and it's so bright I can see through the back of the paper. And the paper says FBI most wanted, and I can see my <laughs> picture on it. I, and I'm looking, I'm just straining my eyes now looking in the side view mirror because I can see my picture. And he walks up and, and, and my brother-in-law is just dying laughing. And he looks at me and he says, are you Sean Stockman? I said, well, yes. And he goes, I, I see that you, you have a warrant out for you. And I'm like, I, you know, I'm trying to put 
everything together in my and grasp everything is just for stealing the heart of one Kelly Dietrich <laughs> and having a sort of excitement. <laughs> <I'm> like, <laughs> man, and at that moment, the car door opens and my brother-in-law falls out on the side of the highway laughing. Now, <laughs> as I'm rolling my eyes and trying to still take us all in, I look in my rear view mirror and I can see that there's a, another person in the police car in the front seat. And he looks like Papa Smurf with a Gilligan's hat on. And I'm like, I wonder what's he doing? And I look back at the state cop and I feel my car move as somebody's getting in the passenger seat and there's Papa Smurf looking right there. And I'm starting, I look at him and he goes, so I hear you want to ask me to marry my daughter. Yes, I would like to ask you to marry your daughter. He goes, well, if you can go through this, you can, you're definitely welcome in the family. So I got a police escort for the remaining few miles to get to the bar <laughs> barbecue. And we pull up to the barbecue and they probably have 200 copies of this FBI po wanted poster plastered all over <laughs> the bushes, the walls, the windows. They're everywhere outside. Well, they tell Kelly to close her eyes that they have a going away gift for her. And they sneak me in and she opens her eyes and there I am. And so she's surprised. And the host there says, well, you guys haven't seen each other for three months. I imagine you want to have a kiss and talk to each other for a few months. So look, just walk out in the backyard. They had one of these really long, narrow backyards. And he said, just go back there, spend a few minutes, and then come back in when you're ready. As we start walking out there, remember, Little Mermaid has just come out. There's all these lips, big cardboard lips that are with arrows on them telling us where to go. And we finally get to the spot where we're supposed to stop, and there's speakers, and they're playing Kiss the Girl from the Little Mermaid. Oh, wow. <laughs> so we have our kiss. We talk for a minute. I propose, and the minute she says yes, there's a round of applause through the speakers. They had mic'd us. They had listened to everything we said, and we look back up, and there's just 30 noses pressed up against a window all watching us. Even though we were in a cluster of trees, they really couldn't see everything. So we go back in, and we have a lot of – they have a lot of friends that were members and non-members here. So there's a mixture of people there. And uh, everybody knows that I had proposed, and everybody knows that she said yes. And I said, okay, now I have a formal gift for my future in-laws. And I went back out to the car, and I grabbed a suitcase. And in there, I had 10 different forms of cows. I had cow <laughs> potholders. I had cow windmills. I had cow calendars. I had cow uh, – Hot, pulled, uh, hot pan holders. I had 10 different kinds of cows. I had a, a, a cow milk pitcher or something like that. And I presented 10 cows to my in-laws to pay for her. Now, there was a I knew there would be <laughs> a so bewilderment cool. look on some of the non-members there, so I'd also brought a copy of Johnny Lingo. <laughs> so we sat down and watched Johnny Lingo, and, and then that, that was a great missionary opportunity right there. And as they saw the story, then they got the gist of what was happening. So Kelly's always been able to say she was a 10-cow wife. Which Now, Lucina, if you look at this podcast, you're looking around like, some of the people in this room get this, this, this reference. Levi Owen, not so much. I don't know if they've ever seen Johnny Lingo. You can find it on yeah. YouTube. We're going to have to find it tonight. I think. So basically, there was a story that was put out on a video. And, and in the early days, the church uses it a lot as a motivational speech. And the idea is in the, I want to say the mid-1800s, there is uh, the culture in the Hawaiian Islands is that a man would buy his wife. He might pay two pigs, three goats, or cows. And the more expensive or valuable the wife was, the more animals were paid. And so it starts off with showing these wives sitting around a campfire saying, well, I was paid two pigs. I was paid four goats. I was paid three cows. And then we break over to 
the young lady who's the center of the story, whose name is Mahana. Mahana is ugly. She is very, <laughs> very homely looking. They've made her look very oh, unattractive totally and she's very shy. And her dad was looking forward to the opportunity of, of eventually marrying her off and getting some kind of payment for her to help his own personal wealth. And the rumor is that Johnny Lingo, he is the hot bachelor. He's the George Clooney at the time. He's, they know he is coming to the island to pick a bride. And rumor has it that he's interested in Mahana, not anybody else. And so the father says, well, if he actually does show up, I'll be lucky to get a goat for her. And there's a great line that we all quote in there was, Mahana, you ugly. <laughs> Because that's what uh-huh. the father says to the says, he isn't going to want you because Mahana, you ugly. <laughs> well, the, the church makes better videos now. <laughs> uh, I, don't mean, I don't think it's church that's made. I don't think it's church made. I think it was independent made that yeah. church excuse it. But anyways, Johnny Lingo comes and he pays 10 cows for her. Uh, Unheard it of. It was eight cows, wasn't it? No. Your, yours is a 10 cow wife. I think she was only an 8 cow I think there's a debate on the 8 to 10 cow, depending on what camp you're in. Yeah. <laughs> the father is just astounded that, the, that he would get so much money for her. Johnny Lingo then takes her away and is gone for a year. Comes back a year later, and she is stunningly beautiful. She has confidence because he began to give her positive affirmations and began to tell her positive things about herself. And that changed her whole countenance and changed who she was when she saw that other people valued her and that she needed to have the same value. So that's the idea of a 10-cow wife is that they're valued. Now, I'm going to preempt this and say Kelly was already a 10-cow wife before. I didn't add anything to it. I just kept it up. So. I, I want to just jump on the back of this real quickly, if you if you don't mind. Those of us who are friends of Sean are constantly being shown up by Sean. Um, he he, I have never seen anybody dote on their wife as much as you do, and and it's it's awesome. And every time he does something, we all go, Sean, cut it out. <laughs> um, but I wanted to ask you about your relationship with Kelly, and she didn't put me up to this, but you clearly, uh, you go above and beyond to dote on her and to treat her beautifully. Um, we've Our families have been invited to multiple, our wives have been invited to multiple Estrofest events. Um, there's always a big tea party for her birthday. Uh, we come up for the for the triple crown and everybody puts on hats. You you do all these special arrangements for your wife. Uh, clearly your relationship with her is very special. Would you mind talking a little bit about that? Your uh, you know what what that's is it just to show us all up or or how is how has that um that uh, dynamic between your wife grown through the years? Again, having the lack of confidence of being blind, deaf, bald and dumb that uh I had heard on TV and other women complain about their husbands so much. Whether it was factual or just uh, cultural things, I figured women hated husbands and the way they behaved. And I vowed to overcome my insecurities and my lack of dashing good looks to bring to the table. I was going to win it in other areas. And so I have gone above and beyond to, uh, beyond to make sure that uh, Kelly would never have an opportunity to say that I didn't pay attention, that I didn't do things for her, and that I was not going to be the stereotypical husband. Well, the rest of us, thank you. <laughs> and, and, no, you're and, a great and, example. And I remember a, a few times that some of, that. of you guys did come up and say, Sean. <laughs> <laughs> Cut it out. <laughs> and, but after a while, you guys just started saying, okay, how can we get in on this? Yeah. So. <laughs> 
That's so good. I love it. What can you tell us a little bit more? Just we've done this before on the show, but what are what are some things you just like about Kelly? That I like about her? Keep it, remember this is a family episode too. <laughs> <laughs> Although it, yeah, we, we've already used innuendo this episode. That is true. <laughs> yeah. I, mean. I absolutely have to say one of the things I do love is a red hair. And that's as ironic because when I was on my mission of coming to an end in Indiana, I said I will never marry a redhead because they can't tan. I will never marry a Hoosier because I just don't think they're smart enough. I will never live in Indiana because I don't think it's a place that brings out the best in people. And I bit it on all three. I married a redheaded Hoosier and went back and got educated by them and finished up my schooling in Indiana. I have come to love that red hair that she has, and I love to listen to her laugh. It's anything I can do to get her to laugh, that's what I love to listen to, the laugh that she does. But most importantly, not only for her love of the gospel— is that I truly feel that we are equally yoked. She is a wife that if I say, I need some help unloading this out of the truck, she's out there not saying, I'm not strong enough to do this. She's saying, okay, how are we going to figure this out? So a lot of the projects around the place took two of us to do that. And she was right there by my side, not complaining. Whatever it is, she's equally yoked with it, and we are together. And those are the things. And then she gave me three great kids and her love of the Northwest of wanting to stay out here. I was worried about that because a lot of times, you end up because the wife wants to be close to her mom, and you end up living close to the mom. And and I did not want to live in Indiana, and so I was so mm-hmm. happy that she wanted to live out here in Oregon. Well, thank you so much for that. And I I agree with you guys. I I think at first, as as husbands, we can kind of feel like, come on, man, back it off a little bit, like give us a chance. But the more you're around somebody like you, Sean, or or something like that, you know, we realize that as guys, really to be true and and live our best and fullest life we need to try to win our wives you know we we need that if we don't we're neglecting a part of us that can bring so much joy and and happiness in our life i think one of the biggest things is people get complacent and just being where we're married what what more do we need and it's that idea that you need to constantly be dating and constantly be making sure you're not putting yourself in a position where you're like you're just okay with just being how things are. And I mean, I think now that your kids are going to be out of the house, you're going to do this too, you you guys are going to be fine. You know, there's some people like when their kids are gone, like they don't know what to do with each other because they've, they've been so focused on their careers and their kids that they don't know each other. You see a lot of divorces at that stage. Yeah. And that's one thing I'm not worried about you two. You guys are going to be fine. Maybe never mind. <laughs> or but I think there's there's a lot that can be um beset to that. And I think that's an important aspect I think all of us need to be focusing on is is your kids are, are always gonna be a part of your life, but they're not gonna be the big the part of your life that is your spouses. They're the person that you're gonna, you know, it's gonna be cleaning, you know, we're gonna have to clean each other up as we get older and we're gonna have to love each other enough that we're gonna be okay with that. And I think that's an important aspect in, in being friends. Yeah. Actually wanting to spend time with each other. I know I have a lot of coworkers that I've worked with that they're like, they want to be out on the road because they're like, oh, I don't want to go home and have to like deal with my wife. I'm like, you guys are crazy. Like, yeah. Yeah. I don't want to have to deal with my kids, but my wife is fantastic. <laughs> yeah. yeah, throw the kids under the bus every once in a while, which uh, we're okay with that. But I, I'm just, you know, I I haven't really had a chance to tell you guys together like this, but I'm, I'm grateful for the example that you set for me because I, I really honestly over the past several years feel like your examples have helped me to change in a lot of positive ways with regards to our relationship. 
uh, meaning me and my wife. And Jared, I, I, I think that your example in particular, you're, you're always trying to just show your wife how much you appreciate her. I think your kids have called it peacocking before. <laughs> um, my, what I've learned from Jared is if well, you I don't make, have to worry about mine, you know, now. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, I'll say if it, it, what I've learned from Jared is if you're making the kids a little bit uncomfortable every once in a while, you're doing the right thing. <laughs> is that what makes Charlotte happy is that you make the kids uncomfortable? <laughs> Charlotte goes along with it. Charlotte puts up with me a lot. That's what it really comes down to. <laughs> but again, for what you were saying, though, is I'm going to go back to is You are some of the people that you hang around with. So look who I hang around with. Look how we all treat our wives. And that's the sum of what we have. Yep. Awesome. You learning any dating advice, Levi? No, you're not going to do the Monty Python thing. Okay. <laughs> uh, that let's, sounds fun. <laughs> let, let's keep going around. Uh, Casey, Any? what else did you want to get into? I feel like I've exhausted all of my It's okay if you questions. have. We, uh, yeah, get my, get my 10 cows back here. <laughs> I drew 10 cows on my paper. Let's see. There was something. There was something in here you talked about. There was something if you – if you could quit work and do whatever you wanted, you know, with unlimited funds, what would you do? And your comment on here was you'd, you'd love to to set up some sort of a service type thing, uh, help uh, the scouts or other people. Uh, talk a little bit more about that. What is your what is it, what would you do if you could just focus on one thing and bring joy to others? What would it be? So I think every couple has that conversation in the car. You know, man, if we win the lottery tomorrow, what would we do with all that money? And Kelly and I have certainly had that conversation, and that answer has always changed over the years. And the last several years, my dream has been if I had an opportunity for unlimited money, well, I don't know if it would have to be unlimited, but the resources, I would open up a church youth camp that could be used for, because I know our camp is, you know, is crowded to be used, the local one. But I would open up some kind of resource for that, but I wouldn't just strictly use it just for the church. I would open it up for other area youth groups to be done. But I would still go on to the model of what the church does, meaning you bring your own staff. I'm just providing you the facilities. And then I would also have stuff for the young men and young women to do as far as equipment, where I know that being able to have uh, rock climbing equipment that you need or tents and other things, that to go out and have these activities that are very powerful in the youth life, I would provide some opportunity for them to check those things out, bring them back, and they, they don't have to. Because one of the things that's always been in the old days of scouts is if you were called the scoutmaster, it meant you were also the storage unit. You know, whatever the, whatever the troop owned, you know, as far as that became your in your garage now. And I would have that central location. So if there was an opportunity that I could have a facility that could be used to influence the youth, it could also be used for adults, and then have other ways to keep that financing going, maybe off to the side of the property that we had to have some private meeting spaces that could be rented out that would provide income to keep it rolling, that would be the dream. Actively seeking investors then. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Big investors. <laughs> yeah, you talked about on that section that Casey was talking about, you talked about trying to help people bring out their best selves. And we kind of talked about that with the 10 Cow Wives story, how he brought her back and she was beautiful because she was confident in herself. And I'd like to know how you... Uh, try and help people bring out the best. Having opportunities as a bishop, it is amazing resources you have to influence people's lives. Not just so much helping them to learn and discover and feel and recognize the Spirit and how that can direct their lives, but we have fast offerings that can help them. We have college education that can help them. We have uh, classes that they can take to help them. We we have a lot of resources 
as church members that we can use to influence their lives. And so that's one thing there. The opportunity I have to work with the next chapter of my life is working with business owners, helping them to understand what they're doing right and how they continue to do that through peer reviews. I love that opportunity that I'm working with now. So that is a great opportunity. And then just, I love talking about my career. I want people to know that you don't have to just be flipping burgers or be in a cubicle. That if you're willing to take a chance on yourself and go into sales, that's where a lot of great financial success and, and personal freedom is. And I always tell people, the water's great, come on out. It's just a job that not many people feel comfortable or think they can do. But if you're willing to do that, it's a great opportunity. And I always try to recruit people into some form of sales because I think it is the best chance they have to do some things. Now, granted, we need our doctors and uh, we need other people with those things. And I'm not going to try to recruit those. But there are opportunities that people don't realize are out there. They aren't just going to be set to a mid-income out there or mid-career experiences. There's some great things you can do out there if you're willing to do it. Like uh, just one thing of many that I learned from you as a bishop while I was still getting my feet wet is when somebody does come to you for help or for guidance, a lot of time, you know, when somebody is in a, in a rut and they're trying to look for some encouragement or some ideas, they tend to ask for the bare minimum. Yeah. And one thing I learned from you is when somebody comes from you in that situation, you would often say, great, you just told me everything you need help with, whether it be financial, whether it be guidance, whatever career, how can I double what I do to help you? And we come up with a plan for you to succeed. And I just, I was curious where that came from because I've started to try to incorporate that both in my calling and in my professional life. I learned real quick as I met with people that a lot of times what kept them from moving in the gospel or coming back to church, because sometimes you have people that haven't been in church in a long time and they're coming in and ask you for financial assistance or food uh, orders, but then you still don't see them at church. And I realized that they're still carrying on a huge stress load. A lot of them are carrying on a huge stress because they're asking out of shame, guilt, fear, like you said, the bare minimum. And what they're doing is just keeping their nose above water in their financial situation. And with that stress level, nothing was progressing. And so, but there was also a little bit of some people who just thought, if I ask for the bare minimum, I can stretch this out for years. And so I took the approach of, well, we're going to get rid of that stress level. So we're going to get you knees above water, but it's only going to be for a short period of time. And then we're going to have the next phase of our plan. So we're going to take that and we're going to get rid of all the stress. We're going to help us so you can sleep at night so that you can uh, keep the, you know, to eat well and so that you can uh, have patience with your kids and those around you. We're going to take that stress level off of you. And it's much like, you know, Jesus with the fishes and the loaves. He said, now that they've been fed, we can talk. And you got to take some of that load off of their minds that they're worried about and take that away. And you let them know up front, it's going to be for a short period of time. And, and that's, depending on the person, that might be one week, that might be six months, but they know it's a short period of time. And then we're going to go on to phase two and we're going to make the next step. And so that's where, because I just said, we need to get rid of this stress. You're not sleeping. That, there's We could go so deep into that topic too, because I think a lot of the people we look at, whether we're in elders quorum, relief society, or the bishopric, you know, whatever leadership calling in the church, we look at people who aren't attending with us and we try to think, how do we get them to church? Well, that's maybe two or three steps or even more down the road. Yeah. You know, we, the first thing we need to be asking sometimes is how do they 
comfortably sleep at night, how do they feel secure about their housing? How do they feel like they have a job that can provide for their family? Uh, do they have, you know, just all this simple stuff, because if you're surviving, you know, you can't thrive. You need to, you need to get out of that survive every single day mat mindset. And, and I think that's a lot of the time an approach that we miss as leaders in the church. You would be surprised what it takes somebody, the average person to come and actually talk to a, a bishop to ask for help. And by the time they get to your office, they are physically exhausted. Because either they've been burning the candle at both ends, either in a double life, or they have been trying to figure out ways to meet their financial needs or how they're going to care for their family. But either way, they are physically and mentally exhausted by the time they get to your office because they, they would not, out of pride or whatever, come talk to you sooner. And so that's the first question I would ask them. I said, how tired are you? And they would just then they you would just see their shoulders droop down and just see them relax. I'm exhausted, man. I, I I can't go another date like this. I said, all right, we're gonna put a plan together. We can get you to sleep. Oh, that's such a good lesson. I I love that flip because I think a lot of the time too, for good reasons as as leaders and stewards of resources, we feel like we need to penny pinch, and and we and we do need to be careful and respect those as being the Lord's resources. But I think, like you said, we also need to understand where the people that are coming to us are actually at. I think it's also important and never been in the seat that you three have all sat in where you've actually been the one that's doling out the, the resources. But I've been in a lot of these meetings and it's oftentimes it's as members of the church, we need to be looking out for, you know, that's why ministering is so important. We need to be looking out for those people that are that are hurting so they don't have to wait so long so that we can yep. recognize those things and and be able to say, hey, Bishop, I think these this family needs a little bit of extra or elders corn president. I think these guys could could use a little help. And how can I help them first first line? And then we can move it up. Cause I know that they're oftentimes the people that are most need of of help and really the ones that deserve they really are the ones that I hate using the word deserve, but I'm not going to use it anyways. Deserve that help are the ones that are the least likely to ask. And yeah. I think so as we need to also be mindful, not just those that are wait till they walk into the door yeah. when they're just desperate, but make sure that we're we're there to help them and know that they, they can get that help even yeah. when they're not. So I think that's a just... I would agree. And you hit on a point earlier that a lot of bishops, especially when the new struggle, they feel like they're a steward of these funds and they've got to be a good steward of the funds. I struggled with that in the very you know first six months of what I'm supposed to do. How much do I help somebody? Do I help them or not? And I was asking every former bishop that I would bump into. And I bumped into Steve Jones. And he had just been released from the stake presidency to go on his mission. He was getting ready to go on his mission, I think, when I asked him this question. And he had been former bishop of the ward, and, and he just said, you know, there's a plan for everybody, and it's different. He goes, if the plan is to put them through four years of college, that's the plan. If the plan is two weeks of food orders, that's the plan. Come up with a plan and work the plan. And once I had that mindset, that was so much easier for me. Boom. Awesome. So Steve Jones, he, he, he that was amazing. You know, it's a, so I, uh, one of our, actually cases, my brother-in-law, um, he was a bishop and he had this one lady that was struggling and it wasn't like a financial thing, but he actually went out. I think he like sent the release study president and said like, go and buy her a really nice dress. And it just seems like it's like, really? Like that's how we're using our, our tithing fund. But she just needed something that was going to be 
a positive for her to help her with her own self-confidence that was going to help her get through something in a difficult time in her life. And he's like, that was the best money that I've ever spent on, on like an anyway, because it was something that she just needed right then, right there. And it's one of those things at the time I'm like, seems like kind of a waste of tithing dollars, but that's not. Oh. It's not always just about, you know, making sure somebody has enough food on the table. It's oh. get, helping them with their spiritual their spiritual needs along the way. I think that's the biggest challenge as a bishop too is is are you going to knee jerk when somebody comes through and asks for that assistance and go whoa whoa like you said good steward of the funds or are you going to open your mind up and your heart up open to the spirit and really listen in this situation what do you want me to do and oh. and that changes the way you approach that and i like what you said every situation is different you cannot treat them all the same and so uh, yeah i mean i think all of us as bishops and any other bishops listening are are right now going oh yeah i did that and i remember that and we've all been there <laughs> yeah. we've all been there we've all had positive and and we've probably all had some negative experiences uh i remember the positive ones uh, yeah. the negative ones uh, you know <laughs> you, you learn from and hopefully you don't have those anymore <laughs> Well, we're about at time. Jared, did, is there anything else you wanted to get into? No, I think I think I've covered all that I need to was hoping to talk about. We cover the sort of excitement, so I, I'm, <laughs> you know, we, I'll be interested to see if that makes the edit. So <laughs> that might be the title. Let me help us shift gears to your last question because I know you have a final question for him. I uh, do. Do you when, want? Go ahead. I just was going to ask again. I'm referring back to when you were um, you were ward mission leader, um, and you had introduced the ward to a concept called J tackle. I say it now, and I it just comes right to my mind. I know exactly what that is and what that means. I wonder if you would, as you you're gonna he's gonna ask you some questions to finish up, but as a lead into that, you do this so well in your life. You J tackle. Everywhere you go, where did that come from, and and why do you? And shortly, briefly, um, what did that? What was that about? When we lived in Vancouver, Washington, in the Vancouver State, the mission president there was only there for, I want to say, six or seven months before he got cancer and had to go home. But that he was a marketing executive, and in his in the professional life, and that was his program that he came up and introduced to all of us in the stakes and in the mission. And it's just talk about your church life, J tackle. He had buttons made up that you would you know, pin on your shirt. And he really tried to get people to talk about your church life. And at first people couldn't say, well, what good is that going to do? And he says, all right, you guys go to work. You don't have any problem listening to your Catholic friends talk about the, the Catholic festival they had that weekend or something that they did at their church that weekend. But you're scared to death to do the same thing back. You're scared to death to say, oh, in primary, one of the kids said the funniest things. Let me tell you about that. We just don't do that. So... That has been one of my favorite things is J-Tackle. And I've even and recently had a business colleague because I, I just start doing it because I think it's a funny story. And they'll say, you got to be careful. This is a professional environment. You know, you may offend some people. I said, if they're offended by that. And he's right, though. I can't argue with him. He's right. But I have to be cautious of that. Well, I love that about you. When I Knowing you, you are never afraid to tell anybody and everybody what's going on in your world, whether it's the gospel or not. And so that's always been something I've admired. So. Well, and the, the best story I have about that is when my son Parker was on his mission. So Parker was kind of my entitled kid. 
It was hard to get him to do things, hard to get him to do the chores correctly. I mean, we had him wash the car five times once in a row because he just couldn't even come close to getting it right. Uh, he, he was obsessed with drumming, as in percussion, and that's all he could think about. We sent him on his mission. We're like, all right, this mission president's going to get tired of him. Just that he's not going to be a team player. And that would totally turn out to be the exact opposite. And towards the end of his mission, so every week when we got an email from him, he would say this, this, and this. And then the last sentence would be, oh, and by the way, I got bit by a rabid dog. I have to take rabies shots. Oh, by the way, I was mugged. Oh, by the way, I ripped my pants. Oh, by the way, I lost my glasses. The last sentence was always something detrimental. And he said, oh, by the way, I had to go to the doctor to get test results, and I expect them back next week because of the frequent fainting that I was having, and they think it might be diabetes. And my wife and I are reading that, going, when were you going to tell us about this? <laughs> and so the next week, we're pins and needles, and we wait, and it turns out the results turned out very uh, positively, meaning that the doctor concluded he didn't have diabetes or any other conditions. It was that he was too exhausted from working so hard, climbing and walking up and down the hills in the area he was at. That made me the proudest dad because my son had a medical diagno diagnosis that he was working too hard. <laughs> now, that is a great story to tell anybody. And you work in, yeah, he was serving a mission in, in Chile and he was walking in a very hilly area. How can you not talk about your church life with that story? I mean, everybody can, every parent can connect with you when you can say, a, do a doctor diagnosed my son with working too hard. <laughs> so it's easy to do that, at least right. for me. Okay, I got the final question for you. What role had being a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints played in you developing a relationship with Jesus Christ? That is, that's a great one. I can remember when I was 17 at a youth conference when I first felt and recognized the Spirit. We're in the mandatory testimony portion of the youth conference, and everybody's getting up there, and all of a sudden I could I knew what was happening. I could feel the Spirit. And then all of a sudden, in my mind, I'm going, oh, and that's what it was three weeks ago, and that's what it was last year, and that's what it was you know, six months ago, all these other things, that I, other times that I felt that, and I learned to recognize it from there. Watching my parents live the gospel and seeing how it blessed their lives and watching my dad, who was a convert, uh, the only member in his family to do so, and how he had stayed true to that through his whole life. He didn't have any examples or any heritage or lineage, you want to say, in the gospel or family or any peer pressure of that nature. It is something that he truly had a testimony of was the gospel. And to see that and to see how that, again, once I discovered that the gospel was very cause and effect, in my mind, it, there's very logical reasons for a lot of the gospel tenets out there. Once I could see that, and put that to practice, then your testimony grows from there. And you and you start to have moments in your life that are undeniable. I I can't say that I've seen the hand of God, but I've had a few experiences that I know was influenced by God, and I cannot deny that. I may not be able to answer every question that somebody may pose about the gospel. I can't tell you how dinosaurs fit into the whole scenario, but I cannot deny those three experiences that I've had. And then, once again, I firmly believe if you want to become the best version of yourself, it's following the gospel principles. And I'll argue with you until the day you die that I'm right on that principle. 
that the best version of yourself can be from following the gospel principles. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Connection Podcast. I know that we did, and I just wanted to say personally thank you for all that you've been doing to share the podcast. Every day I hear stories from somebody who connected, particularly with an episode or shared something with a friend, and you guys are making this happen, and this is what it's all about. Thank you so much. We're going to take a little break. I know that August was a busy month for us, and we had a lot of episodes come out. We're still going to have a few come out in September. We have some great guests coming pretty soon, and we're going to start a new series called Who We're Becoming, first by interviewing Tina Marchand. We also have Peter Grossnickel of Springfield Fourth Ward coming up sometime next month. And we'll wrap it all up with an interview with President Cornelius, the mission president for Eugene Mission, and his wife at the end of the month. Till then, take care. <laughs>